Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Caged In, the podcast where week by week I go film by film through the career of Nicolas Cage to find out is he beyond classification, is he a real gem of an actor who just cannot be described in any unimaginable words or is he a crackpot loon that we best forget about and move on with our lives. Each week, I get on a guest and ask them, are they a Nicolas Cage fan? What was their first and which is their favourite Nicolas Cage film? This week's film is Richard Stanley's 2020 sci-fi body horror, Colour Outer Space. And my guest is the fantastic Nick Helm. As with all these episodes, the regular spoiler warnings do apply. So if you haven't seen this film, do check out the handy document in the show notes that will tell you if and where the film is streaming, as well as a couple of disclaimers. One being that both myself and Nick believe H.P. Lovecraft to be an absolute racist piece of shit. And this conversation was recorded pre-Joel Schumacher's death. So if there's any jokes at Joel Schumacher's expense. I believe there may be a uh, couple, nothing too bad anyway. Uh, but that is that is why they are in here. Uh, we're not making light of the dead. Neither myself or Nick would dare do such a thing. And I think both of us are fans of Joel Schumacher's work. We're just not fans of a certain film he made with Nicolas Cage. And I'll let you find out which film that is as you listen to the podcast. One last thing before I let you go is that you have until the 12th of February. Yes, that is next Friday, the day that Willy's Wonderland is released to order your Not The Beast Caged In t-shirt. Uh, they're up for pre-order. There's a pretty small limited run, but I really want to provide something cool for you guys uh, do go over to the socials that's caged in pod on facebook twitter and instagram to check out photos of what that design will look like and it's an amazing design by an artist called tim sinclair and i'm sure if you've seen it you'll agree that it's gonna be a fantastic t-shirt but yeah do be sure to head on over to cagedinpodcast.limitedrun.com to pre-order your not the bees t-shirt now with all of that out of the way, there's one last thing left to do, and that's to get Raging with Cage.
I'm here to look at the hallucinogenic sci-fi body horror, Color Out of Space, based on the H.P. Lovecraft short story. Nick Cage plays Nathan Gardner. When a strange meteor lands in his garden, things start to get trippy. Time and space bend, and then things get really weird. They always say when taking hallucinogens that you should have a spotter. So to make sense of this trip, I'm joined by actor, comedian, writer, musician, and one-man mega myth, Nick Helm. How are you today, Nick? I'm all right. That's me. That is. <laughs> How are you? Yeah, I'm. I, I, I'm. I'm good. All, all things considering, my brain's a bit frazzled from watching this film, and has some weird parallel yeah. to what's going on, kind of in the world of a family who can't leave their home as fear of what is outside and this kind of unseen terror. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, because uh, I've I've been living on my own. So I didn't even. I'm more, I'm, I'm more like Tommy Chong. <laughs> but, um, but uh, yeah, it was. I mean, I watched it last night. You watched it last night too, right? Yes, yes. Is that the first time you'd seen it? Yes, hundred percent. Like I, I like to go in with a fresh brain. Just kind of get, give me the weirdness. Yeah. What? Right. <laughs> but I mean, okay. So your podcast is basically, it's a Nicolas Cage appreciation podcast, right? Well, yeah, it kind of started off just to the fact that it's a fascination with the fact that as an actor with like a 40-year career, he's got over like 100 movies and kind of people of his generation. And obviously he's become this kind of mythic figure in his like acting style and like kind of it's become a meme essentially and like first of all I started yeah. off like say, yeah. just as like the social science aspect of it of like what makes him such like an interesting character as a, as a person as an actor but then like over time I've kind of softened and I've become I've become a massive fan it, I wasn't always like it's always like trying to I don't know pitch this to people I kind of can come across like some weird anorak do you know what I mean and let, unless people kind of listen to the podcast or know me they kind of like if like when approaching like yourself on twitter you probably think like who's this fucking weird guy do you know what i mean <laughs> like who's no, a- no, I, I think he's a weird he's a weird one because he's had about eight different careers as well in terms of in terms of sort of like his evolution as an actor it's kind of he has never he's sort of like <laughs> he's sort of like madonna in that he's sort of reinvented himself over and over again. But I'm just looking at his IMDb, and I'm like on the first screen, and uh, Mom and Dad is on there from 2017, which I think is quite recent, you know? And then when you actually look at how much he's done since then... Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's kind of crazy. It's crazy. If you put, like, Mum and Dad at the beginning of... At the, at the bottom of the screen, depending on how big your screen is, he's <laughs> done, like, you know, 15 projects since then. And he just, I mean, I don't know. I went through a period of um, being sort of indifferent to Nicolas Cage, and then I liked Nicolas Cage Well, around about The Rock. Well, let's, yeah, let, let, let's get into a few questions I uh, always ask at the beginning of these, which is, obviously you said you've had an indifference period, but are you now a Nicolas Cage fan? Well, yeah, so I, so I like, I, I sort of, I didn't really know. It's weird because one of my, 
Um, one of my, not one of my earliest memories, but I remember I went to see Moonstruck uh, when I was, I was way too young. So my mum wanted to go and see Moonstruck. I must have been five or six. <laughs> and the only thing I really remember about Moonstruck is there was an advert for Police Academy 5 beforehand. Perfect. And I was like, why aren't we watching that? <laughs> why aren't we watching Police Academy 5? And we watched, yeah, so I remember, I mean, Moonstruck was so advanced for me. Um, so my mum took me and my sister to see Moonstruck. I think my mum, so I sort of like, I kind of knew who Nicholas Cage was from that. And then he made kind of like, he was like a he was like an actor, wasn't he? He made like gritty crime movies. Like he was like a proper actor for a while. And then it was such a left field thing when he when he started making, you know, The Rock. That 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 mid nineties stretch is like kind of and it's hit after hit, like Well him and Travolta sort of like took it in turns, didn't they? And then it, yeah. you know, he did The Rock, Travolta did Broken Arrow, they both did face off. And then they kind of like, you know, they they had like a load of hits together. But like um, Con Air. Um, and then I really hated him for a while because I, I found, I, I hated National Treasure. Um, uh, yeah. And then he made sort of like a bunch of films that I found quite lazy and annoying. Oh. And I really hated the National Treasure films. And then... Um, what happened? Oh, I went to, so, so this is, okay. So <laughs> this is how, this is where I am now in Nicolas Cage, right? So in about um, 2011 or 2012, right, uh, I'd just done the Edinburgh Festival and um, uh, as a treat, uh, no, no, what did happen? So we went to the Edinburgh Festival. My parents own this tiny little cottage in Brittany right? Mm -hmm. And me and my girlfriend at the time went to just ch sort of chill out in this cottage in the middle of nowhere because uh, we thought like a week of board games and burning stuff on the fire would be kind of like <laughs> just what we needed. <laughs> it turned out like four days into it we were bored out of our minds. So we got into a car and we drove to uh, Disneyland Paris, right? Amazing. From Brittany. <laughs> Which is sort of like that's like a that's a long drive. That's like a that's like a, maybe a fifteen hour drive, and um, and we got to Fra uh, we got to Paris, and uh, we went there, and it was September, so the schools were back, and there weren't any kids around, and so you could just go on rides all day, like over and over and over again. Amazing. And I went on. I think I went on Space Mountain, anywhere because I've. <laughs> I've told this story a few times, so it's sort of <laughs> fluctuated over the years. But anywhere between seven times in a row and 12 times in a row, right? <laughs> I went on Space Mountain. And my girlfriend was just like, if we sit at the back, you really get whipped around, right? And I was like, okay. So we sat at the back. But I've got quite a long body, right? I've got, I'm six foot, but I've got like the legs of like a five foot five guy. I, and the body. I have the exact same problem. Yeah, I'm massively I'm a, disproportionate. I, I, yeah, I think I, so. I call I say I'm a long body, <laughs> which means that it's fine, right? I'm six, I'm six foot. But when you get into the um, the harnesses that you get on roller coasters and stuff, it means that your body is slightly too long for mm. you. And so when I was clamping down, 
I had to sort of like um, sort of like uh, get into sort of like a weird position in order to sort of like fit into the actual uh, into the actual harness. So I was at a weird angle. Anyway, I did it seven or eight times. Came back from France, didn't really think much of it, and then um, like she was just about to go, she was just about to go to Australia for two weeks, and uh, my family were in France, um, and I was going to be on my own. And we were watching uh, just before. It's like a farewell movie. <laughs> we, were watch, we were watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre in bed, and at the beginning of the at the beginning of the film, I was fine. By the end of it. I was crunched up like a prawn at the bottom of the bed, right? <laughs> and I was in absolute agony. And um, she lived on like the third floor of this big house. And so we had to go down. And I couldn't stand up, like, I couldn't move. And we had to go down all the floors. And then I had to be like helped into the car. We drove to the emergency unit about one o'clock in the morning. They, it took them about two hours to see me. When they saw me, they said that I had torticollis which is sort of like this muscle spasm thing. And they gave me uh, a load of tramadol. <laughs> and uh, they said, uh, take that, you should be all right in two weeks. And then my girlfriend dropped me off on the doorstep and then drove to the airport. And I was on my own for two weeks. <laughs> I couldn't, couldn't feed myself. I could barely, I couldn't wash. I couldn't go to the toilet by my, it was just, it was, the whole thing was just like, it was, Fucking awful, right? And the only thing I had was I had tramadol and uh, access to Amazon, and I started by <laughs> I started by a Nicolas Cage films. Amazing, fantastic. I hated him because <laughs> I, I, I wasn't a fan, right? So I don't know what got me into what what made me start doing it, but I bought like Season of the Witch, um, uh, Bad Lieutenant, uh, Vampire's Kiss. Uh, there were there were some others, right? And so I was. I'm watching these. I'm watching these Nicolas Cage films, and I'm in absolute agony all the time, except for when I take this tramadol. And then there's like this, this like couple of hour window when you're in the middle, where everything is just you just chilled out. It's sort of <laughs> um, slightly hallucinogenic, and you're watching these Nicolas Cage films, and you just go, these are fucking brilliant. These are the best films I have ever seen. Um, especially something like Season of the Witch, where it's so historically inaccurate on like, oh. like it's, it's the Salem Witch, it's the Salem Witch Trials. Uh, they're, they're in the, uh, the Crusades and they travel from um, uh, one side of the world to the other side and like him and Ron Perlman. So they're coming back from the Crusades uh, during the Salem Witch Trials and then the, the Black Death starts. And it's just kind of like, that's like three historic things that happen in, in, this, in, in your film, in an hour and a half film, that all took place 200 years apart from each other. Well, well that, that film just, as well, specifically, has got this, it's got the, like, buddy cop aspect of, like, Nicolas Cage yeah. and Ron Perlman's characters. It's like, it doesn't know what film it wants to be. And, like, straight away... <laughs> It's a, it's, a buddy, it's a buddy cop film where they're transporting their prisoner from one side yeah. of the country to the other. But the prisoner's a witch yeah. and they're <laughs> medieval knights. I, I remember being like taken out of that film within like the first 30 seconds when you see Ron Perlman's like perfectly barbered haircut. And I was like, right, 
Like that, and like, I think the opening line is like, "Whoever kills the least amount of guys is buying the drinks tonight." Like a couple of ruddy bloody blokes. Like, do you know what I mean at football? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, what, but one of the things I really liked about that was Phil, because like he's wearing a fucking wig in that film, isn't he? And, no, um, I think that's his hair. No, it's not his hair <laughs> because on the DVD, it's not because it's it's a it's it's a it's a famous Nick Cage wig, and it's one of the reasons why I started actually really respecting him, which was that um, <laughs> that on the DVD extras when he's in, being interviewed, he's in full costume but he's not wearing the wig, right? Amazing. And you go, oh, it's a decision. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He's not like Sean Connery where he's wearing a hairpiece and they're trying to convince you all the way through the 60s that James Bond isn't bald. (laughs) It's like, it's literally Nicolas Cage is going, um, he's got like thinning hair, receding hairline, and he's going, uh, what sort of hair would my character have? And he's like going, right, we're not limited with my limitations, right? Let's start, let's create this character from the hair down, right? Yeah. And that's what he does. And it's kind of like, he, and then I was just like, oh, it's a decision. It's not just a vanity thing where he's trying to, you know, because if he's doing interviews for the DVD extras without his wig, he obviously doesn't care about that stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's all about the character. And then you go, well, this is, it's all of a sudden it's interesting, right? Well, that's one of the things I found from doing this podcast is a lot of the stuff he does, like there is there is a stage in his career where it's real bottom of the barrel. Do you know what I mean? You can walk into any Asda and you'll see a lot of these DVDs free for a fiver. Like, but he does interesting stuff with the roles that he gets. Like even, even if the film is terrible, like uh, one I co- covered recently was Stolen, which like you look at the cover... Yeah. For- you look at the cover; it looks terrible. But then, is that Nicole Kidman? No, that's Trespass. That that is that is a big steaming pile of shit. That's uh, director. Awful. Yeah, dir- yeah. Uh, again, it has all of the elements to be a great film because Nicole Kidman, uh, Nicolas Cage, oh, what's his name, um, Ben Mendelsohn. But then that that film falls down on it has no twist. Well, the the twist <laughs> in it. Who directed that one? Joel Schumacher directed uh, Trespass. Fuck off, Fiddy. Yes. I've seen it. Fuck <laughs> off. It's... Fucking hell. But that, that, that is... But he did Trespass, and then that is sandwiched. I mean, that's a shit sandwich. He did Trespass, Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance, and Stolen. And it's kind of like... I mean, Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance isn't good, but I mean, it's better. I don't know. It's weird, isn't it? It was a real bad pack. So he, so the other film that I saw when I was on Tramadol was uh, Drive Angry. <laughs> Amazing. What, what did what did you make Which, of Drive Angry? <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. I loved. Uh, oh, and the Sorcerer's Apprentice as well. And of course, he was in Kickass. Um, yeah, but, I mean, he's done so many fucking. <laughs> oh my god, he's done so many. You know. Uh, oh my god. Oh my god. Um, <laughs> What a weird career. Can we just go through his career? I know you've done this like every yeah, single yeah, week, yeah. but can we just go through When I really got into so before he did The Rock, he did Leaving Las Vegas, which was his big Oscar. And he was like, he's a proper actor. But before he did that, he did Kiss of Death, which I vaguely remember being at the cinema, but I was too young to see it. And then he did, what was the one I saw? I saw Amos and Andrew on a plane, which was him and Samuel L. Jackson in this sort of race relations comedy. Yeah, which I'm not um, sure. I'm not like 
having watched that a couple of years ago was quite eggy then. I don't know how that holds up in regards to race relations now as no. well. I watched I watched it on a fucking on a plane. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like it was back in it was back in the early nineties I watched it on a plane where you only had one screen between the entire plane and you all had to watch it or not watch it. You know? We had that and we had Groundhog Day. And I just remember thinking Groundhog Day was the best film I'd ever seen. And Amos and Andrew was fucking awful. Um, oh, fuck, he did that just before Red Rock West. Red Rock West was one of my favourite films growing up. It's, I loved it. I think that's like a really underrated, like, just crime thriller that nobody talks about, especially of, like, the 90s. Like, I hold that up. I'm a massive um, David Lynch fan. And, uh, yeah, so it's got uh, Lara Flynn Boyle from Twin Peaks in it. And is it Dennis Hopper? Dennis Hopper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dennis Jay- De- JT Walsh or is it uh M Emmett Walsh? I think it's JT Walsh. Yeah, it's Red yeah, Rock West. JT is- Walsh. <laughs> um yeah, it's such a good film. It's like a proper like crime noir. I always remember the bit of acting that I like the most because his knees all bust up and he's looking for work. And there's this bit when he goes in uh, to a garage at the beginning and there's money that's left uh, un- unsupervised. <laughs> and he has this bit, which I guess is overacting in a way, where you're sort of really signposting your thought process. But he looks at the money and he sort of rubs his hands and then he strokes his mouth like mm, should i do this or shouldn't i do this <laughs> and then he walks away and you go so it's obviously it's sort of like he's signposting what he's thinking i just remember that being like excellent acting when i was younger. <laughs> I loved it. but then he did you know then he did guarding tests which was awful uh it could happen to you fine trapped in paradise one of the worst christmas films i've ever seen <laughs> Hate that. but then he did trapped in paradise that was three films before he did The Rock. It's and then The Rock was just fucking bonkers. It's just like, how have you made that film? <laughs> I think the tipping point for his career was maybe a like one-two punch, perhaps of uh, Wild at Heart and then uh, Leaving Las Vegas. Kind of like getting the art house on side with Wild at Heart, and then kind of getting the critics, the chin strokers to really pay attention with leaving Las Vegas. And obviously that opened up the doors to that. Like, just if you look at like, yeah, from leaving Las Vegas, the run of films up until that point, like The Rock, Con Air, Face Off, City of Angels, mm, Snake Eyes, 8mm, Bringing Out the Dead, and then Gone in 60 Seconds. Gone in 60 Seconds, though. Gone in 60 Seconds was huge, you know. I don't think I've ever seen Gone in 60 Seconds. It's, uh, uh, it's it's weirdly directed by the same director of Season of the Witch. Really? That's <laughs> not that weird, is it? Well, that's, the, yeah. Uh, 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 that's like... Uh, well, a weird, a weird thing about, like, Season of the Witch and Trespass, they were both the last films for both directors. Neither of them have, like, directed anything since. So their careers have been put on hold since 2012 so like it's very like (laughs) um (laughs) so obviously we've done it we've done a nice little run through of nicholas cage's career picking out some highlights but what is your favorite nick cage movie conair conair what what is it about conair that i i 
I totally agree with you. It's a fantastic film, but what is it that spe- speaks to you, as it were? Well, I would maybe say, now that we're talking about it, Red Rock West, and I would also say, not my favourite, but Vampire's Kiss, I think, is, I, think it's, I think it's brilliant. As a satire, I think that you can watch it as a companion piece to uh, American Psycho. Uh, the, it's almost, is, yeah. It's almost the same film. It's and almost, the fact that the fact that people like um, uh, the guy is an asshole, right? He's playing yeah. an asshole, and so he acts like he's an asshole. He overacts. He acts like he's a melodramatic dickhead, <laughs> right? That's the character that he's done. It's not bad performance from Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage is presenting that character as if he's an unlikable douchebag. And that's exactly what you get in the film. And then you get people that, that have either not seen the film or they've just seen clips mm-hmm. of him in the film and just assume that... And I would say that's probably where most of the criticism is coming from, is people that haven't even bothered to watch the film and they're just putting it down to like a, a sizzle reel of Nicolas Cage overacting in Vampire's Kiss. He's great in that film. Well, there's a, very, really good. there's a very specific YouTube clip called Nicolas Cage Loses His Shit, which is kind yeah, of... I've seen that. Yeah, which is like heavily involves Vampire's Kiss, which like from research in that movie, the the stuff he did on set like for it really got into character. So when he eats the cockroach, he actually did that. He was an asshole to to like the cast members. He had this really weird request that he had to have yogurt on his toes during a sex scene because apparently that's what got that's what got his character off. And like I think it's that thing of being an asshole and just like what's a ludicrous demand i can make do you know what I mean like what can i do to just like really test the patience of the the crew and like push this to the next level and it's bizarre well, i don't necessarily condone being a prick on <laughs> i have worked with those people and it is difficult but what i would say is that um it's i think it's it's always pinpointed as one of his worst along with uh, Wicker Man but I would say that Vampire's Kiss is a really underrated misunderstood film oh 100% and, um, probably not as good as American Psycho but it's almost the same film uh, just done what uh, 12 years before it yeah so tw- maybe, it was, maybe it was ahead of its time um, it's like American Psycho was about the 80s and Vampire's Kiss was made in the 80s so maybe that's the difference. And that's another um, one. Yeah, I was going to say, that's another Nicolas Cage film that, like, from that, like, the writer had uh, written After Hours, the Martin Scorsese film, wrote wrote Vampire's Kiss, and then has kind of, like, drifted into obscurity since. Robert Bierman, the director, ended up just kind of directing a lot of, like, Holby City and The Bill. Like, he's a Brit- British director, kind of, again, like, drifted off into minor obscurity as it were and it's kind of like that film there's a there's a really good uh insider article that like kind of breaks down like the troubles that that film had and kind of the weird legacy and it like very much like you said it is that thing that it was ahead of its time it's only now that people are either either taking the piss out of it judging it having not seen it or people going it is great it is that kind of proto american psycho like you said which is a a point I've been trying to make for years. <laughs> but what I would also say is <laughs> I was on Pamadol when I watched it. No, no, no. So... Like, 
<laughs> Don't worry, you've got a second opinion from somebody who who has watched uh, a handful of times, and I, I, I'm 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 backing I'm backing you up here. Um, but it's good that you bring up Vampire's Kiss because that brings us like perfectly into Color Out of Space because you could argue like that is Richard Stanley, the director of this. That's his favorite Nicolas Cage film, and is it? He, he asked it, yeah, it's uh, this and Panos Cosmotos, who directed Mandy. I'm not sure if you've seen that. Like, Yeah, Mandy, yeah. Both of those directors have cited Vampire's Kiss as their favourite like Nicolas Cage movies, and you can kind of see that from the performances he gives in both of these, Like, especially if they were kind of notes he, he got or he had some kind of knowledge to the fact that they were their favourite. And in this color out space you get the resurgence of that voice he does in vampire's kiss he sort of because he sort of gets keeps slipping into this sort of californian sort of mm. twang thing yeah it's um yeah it's a bit jarring in color out of space but i really liked what well, i just i was just really happy watching it because um because yeah, I feel like you know there's stuff like U.S. Indi- USS Indianapolis. Um, I feel like the Humanity Bureau. <laughs> I mean, yeah, pay the ghost. There's, he sort of like made a left behind. Fuck me! <laughs> oh my god! Have you done that one yet? Have you done that? Yeah, I spoke to Carl Donnelly about that one. Uh, uh, me left behind what a fucking and the worst thing is it's got leah thompson in it and you just think oh come on we've waited how many years to get her back on screen and then all of a sudden she's just made fucking left behind that what an insane fucking film what was anyone thinking well it's like <laughs> nicholas cage doesn't even put in a performance he's just sort of like there for the money you know my, my theory is for that because his brother is a priest like one of Nicolas Cage's brothers is a priest and he's cited in interviews that he did it as a favour to his brother because he really liked the book. But it's almost like he has this kind of fear of upsetting the Christian crowd. So he's like, I'm not going to do my usual spiel. Do you know what I mean? I'm not going to go go crazy with it. I'm just, I don't know. It's like a cardboard cutout of a man in that film. It's, yeah, the only thing that's really noteworthy of it, of that film, is the fact that it got made. <laughs> uh, aside from that, it's a really boring film. It's boring. It looks cheap. It's boring. Nicolas Cage puts in the least Nicolas Cage-like performance mm-hmm. on, of all time. Yeah, it's sort of an unforgivable film, really. What well, that that um, everyone's time. A thing that really sticks out to me about uh, Left Behind is the score, because it kind of like just sounds like this library music, kind of like picking all this like unlicensed music do you know what I mean like you've kind of someone's trying That's to make a you right? yeah 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 it's like it's like the getty images of 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 music basically and the getty yeah. images of films like it's very yeah. televisual it's kind of i don't know it it gets going and then just finishes it's not really got anything it's got some of the worst like some of the worst acting I've, I've, I've ever seen. <laughs> um, yeah, it's so, it's, it's terrible. Yeah. And that plane looks so cheap. The set that they're in just looks awful. Well, the, and I know there's meant to be like layers to it where all of the passengers are meant to represent a different deadly sin and all that. It's just shit though. <laughs> yeah. 
really bad. So it's kind of like when you when you get to something like the one-two punch, as you say, of something like Mandy and then Color Out of Space. It's like um, I think that I don't think that he looks at his career the way that we look at his career. You know. And I think people with Mandy were like, oh, finally, Nicolas Cage goes full Nicolas Cage. And I don't think he thinks about himself in terms of, like, I'm going to go full Nicolas Cage. Mm -hmm. That'd be a ridiculous way to think about yourself. I just think that he's finally sort of, like, picked a deep... I, I think that a lot of his decisions have been financial decisions as opposed to... Um, oh, 100%, but, like... As we've seen from Mandy and Color Out Space in recent years, if you roll the dice enough times, you will, you will, you will cash out with some gold. Do you know what I mean? Like, Matt, like, Matt, and what? both of them as well, like, uh, released by Spectre Vision, which is a company owned by Elijah Wood, like, uh, which is really? like, yeah, yeah. Well, he made that film with Elijah Wood, didn't he? The Trust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That was good. Yeah. So um, yeah. So he made the trust, then he made Mandy. Well, I mean, he made loads of films in between. <laughs> then he made Mandy, and then Richard Stanley was trying to get Color of Space made with them, and then they said, "What about Nicolas Cage?" And then Nicolas Cage was already into H.P. Lovecraft, and then that's how they got together on that. It feels like because of the visuals as well, because it's and the colors that they use, it feels sort of like a spiritual sequel as well in a way. Yeah, definitely. Very reliant on kind of like this, I don't know, like bright neon, like day, like just really, really up, I don't know, at times quite upsetting colour palette. Do you know what I mean? Like just arresting and just like aggressive, like the kind of like use of these bright, it's like a magenta and like pink, isn't it? The kind well, of colour palette for this. It is, it, it's magenta. And so basically the because I've done a little bit of reading since. <laughs> it's such a fucking crazy film. that, it, But it's not... Do you know what? I, I say it's crazy. I think Mandy is crazy in a kind of like, oh, my God, they're really doing this. You know, I would say Colour of Space is sort of crazy in quite a restrained way. And it's also... Um, I mean, I'm just thinking about some of the stuff now. Now I realise I might be talking bollocks. I thought, I thought, I thought the pacing was really slow, mm-hmm. and so it's not necessarily the most exciting film to watch as you're watching it. But then, when there are moments, it's sort of uh, yeah. I mean, there are some really horrifying moments in this film that I think have affected me more than a lot of films I've seen uh, in recent years. And, um, but the colour magenta is because it's meant to be like this alien colour that no one is familiar with. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Nicholas Cage even says at some point, oh, I don't know what colour it is. And you're there and you're thinking, you'd just say purple, wouldn't you? If you're a bit, if, you know, <laughs> yeah. it, was a, it was a purple sort of light. But it's not, it's magenta. And it's the only colour that doesn't show up on any um, natural uh color slide yes uh that we have on earth so it's sort of like a man-made color that doesn't really exist in nature anywhere and uh, that's why they picked it as this alien color because it's um uh because it's not a natural color look at this 
All those years in the big city, we finally got out. We're living the dream. Maybe it is a dream. light or actually i don't even know what color it was it wasn't like any color i'd ever seen before looks like a meteorite you think it's radioactive i mean it's from space right meteorites are generally no more dangerous than ordinary rocks how can something that big just disappear did you plant those no ward you come here for a sec oh god what are you doing? Shh. It's talking to me. Who's talking to you? A man in the well. It's in the static, it's in the moisture. It's in here, it's out there. And what's out there is in here now. Everything's under control. Why are you so in denial? That thing from the meteorite changes everything around it. Can you believe me now? I don't know what I believe anymore. There's a really interesting line in the H.P. Uh, Lovecraft short story where, like, to me, it, it felt a bit like sloppy writing where it's just like, oh, it's, it's a colour that's undescribable. And it's like, I think like, that's the direct quote. It's like, eh, it just feels like you've got a word count like H.P. and you've gone, we'll just say it's undescribable instead of, like, waste it. Like, because he's a man who doesn't waste a lot of time on kind of um, descriptions. It's kind of a lot of plot with H.P. Lovecraft. Do you know what I mean? Like, do you kind of see it in like his his books have never had like a romantic through line they've never had kind of like he's not about that he's not about like big descriptions or like character backgrounds he's just let's let's hit the hit the ground running and just go with the yeah. story yeah i noticed that it's all, almost like fact-based writing yes you know he'll say that he'll say that there's uh oh there's a farm in the woods it's got two buildings but he won't say what the buildings look like, no. Uh, what, the, what the forest looks like, it, you know, it will kind of like, um, but um, but he'll say sort of like um, uh, that the forest is haunted, uh, and there's a guy that lives on the outskirts of the forest, but he's the only guy that you know. And it's, uh, so so he gives you details with one hand, but he doesn't give you them with the other. Yeah. So I think he's quite interesting. He'll he'll like say that there's a family, but he won't really. He won't tell you what their jobs were or, or, you know, he doesn't go into any detail. And I thought, like, because obviously there's quite a few, like, modern elements to the film. Um, uh, I went and, because <clears throat> it's based on a Lovecraft short story and I haven't, I haven't read the short story before. So I just looked it up and, I, and it's sort of like, it's, 
they've got it on YouTube where you can just listen to it, and it's like an hour and not, I think it's an hour and ten minutes, an hour and twenty minutes. You know, there's different versions. I listen to like the hour and twenty minute one, and it's it's a really good companion piece, you know, because you just think you get to the end of the film and you're kind of like, how it, how have they what what's going on? <laughs> you know? And it's all the stuff about the in the film. It's all the stuff about the daughter being into witchcraft, and then, um, and interestingly, like Richard Stanley is really into witchcraft, and he's really a massive stoner. Well, so the two, the two older kids. One of them's a stoner, and one of them's into witchcraft. <laughs> it's sort of like they're both facets of Richard Stanley, but also. Uh, they mention witchcraft in the short story, don't they? Where they're kind of like talking about... Well, so it's almost like he's woven that into the film and sort of fleshed it out of it. Well, there's a like reference to something that uh, H.P. Lovecraft invented, which is the Necronomicon, like the book of spells that the, right, daughter, yeah. the daughter is like reading from. And there's that harrowing scene where she takes a, a Stanley knife and just kind Richard of... Like, <laughs> carves these runes into her skin and like kind of gives this blood sacrifice and she kind of has this like rune on her forehead which like i don't know like nothing nothing is questioned in this film either like people are like people don't really like stuff happens like there is a horrific moment when the mother and like the youngest son are fused together in this like horrific like you 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 look kind of like taken back there for a second because you might have remembered it but it's it's horrible right that that scene like it, it's um it's it's absolutely stunning there's there's several moments like that in the film i mean again the pacing is really slow but there's several moments like that in the film where it's it's sort of it's hot. It's horrifying. I mean, are we doing spoilers or not? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. This, this, this should so, be. I think there's the bit uh, when um, is it Charlie Richardson? Yes. Let me double check. Is it... Yes, Jolie Richardson. Yes. So Jolie Richardson. There's the bit when she cuts her fingers off, which is just sort of like, oh fucking, because you know she's going to cut herself, but you don't realise she's going to hurt herself that bad. Yeah. But that's intercut with this absolutely hilarious sequence with Nicolas Cage looking at himself on TV going, oh, no, yeah. why, didn't somebody, why didn't somebody tell me to comb my hair? And it's really funny because it's sort of, you think of Nicolas Cage as sort of like larger than life and eccentric. And then he's playing a guy that's just got the exact same, he can't stand looking at himself on TV. He's got the same you know, issues that he, everyone else would have. And it's cut into, into this scene where Jolly Richardson cuts her fingers off, which is fucking horrific. It's the bit when she gets fused to her son. And all of that is just awful. You know, um, there's the bit with the Stanley knife, which is horrible. Um, and then there's also, oh my God, there's the bit um, when uh, he pushes his daughter into the room and says, feed mummy. Uh, or go feed your mother, or yeah. however he says it. And it's just like this absolutely horrific sort of human-spider hybrid. But it's horrific. It's just, it's horrific. I've seen, you know, you compare it to stuff. I, 
stuff at its very worst is sort of like um, Dwayne Johnson at the end of The Mummy Returns, right? <laughs> the, angle, the angle that they use for it, and at no point do you get a good... One of the great things about this film is that you never really get a satisfying view of what it is that you're looking at. You can see Nicolas Cage scratching all the way through the film, mm-hmm. and I kept like going, what's he scratching? Give us a good look at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And either, either they don't give you a close-up so you can't really see what he's scratching at, or the close-up is so close that it doesn't really give you much of a context of what it is on his body, do you know? And so I just thought that, that stuff like that was done really well. But there are moments in it that are just so fucking shocking and horrific that you go, oh, my God. You know, I thought the llama stuff was quite cute. The, you know, the special effects and stuff with the llamas. But, um, but I, you know, there were those moments. And while I was watching Colour Out of Space, I immediately wanted to watch um, In the Mouth of Madness. And then as soon as I started thinking about In the Mouth of Madness, I was thinking, well... It's it's like annihilation as well, mm-hmm. and you could basically you could watch um, Color Out of Space, Annihilation, Mouth of Madness, and The Thing in one sort of like big kind yeah. of like movie marathon, and you can have like a proper fucking horrific trippy weird <laughs> night, and and also you know it just made me sort of like because um, The Thing is one of my favourite films and John Carpenter is one of my favourite directors and I don't have a problem with them remaking The Thing in an actual fact because The Thing was a remake of The Thing from Another World. You just think there could be another remake or there could be a sequel to it yeah. and if they did do a sequel to The Thing you could set it on a farm and if you did set it on a farm you could put someone like Nicolas Cage in this movie and in actual fact Richard Stanley would be a great director to do something like that so that it wouldn't be like The Thing reboot, remake, sequel thing that they made uh, like 10 years ago but it would be kind of like a reimagining the way that John Carpenter reimagined The Thing you could do like a reimagining of um of that concept and just stick it somewhere else and i think that this i mean this almost works as sort of that do you know what i mean well i think the thing is very inspired by hp lovecraft because obviously that thing of these humanoid and kind of there's a lot of tentacles i think like obviously cthulhu is the big thing in hp lovecraft mythology of this kind of tentacle faced creature from another dimension and kind of you can see his imprint throughout loads of stuff whether it's stephen king like the thing just kind of is is seeped seeped into a lot of things like even even in regards to i don't know um the lot like things like the loch ness monster like there's a there's an interesting fact that the loch ness monster didn't it wasn't like talked about until a year after that king kong came out so there's this kind of thing that like people unless something's put into the consciousness of people, then they go, oh, maybe, maybe that's a thing. Or like in the 1950s, people started talking about flying saucers and all of a sudden they were round and that's after movies had shown it. And then when it came to the 90s, all of a sudden they were triangular or like how pop culture influences people's like, I don't know, like, like thought processes of the real world. And then obviously, yeah, H.P. Lovecraft is kind of, the godfather yeah. of of modern horror in a way like even though he was writing in the early yeah died in the mid 30s yeah so. definitely definitely uh with the thing and um, in the mouth of madness which mm-hmm. are both john carpenter 
So we're in the mouth of madness. Until this, I think people widely regarded that as the closest thing you'll get to sort of Lovecraft on film, really. <laughs> but, um, but that's a weird film, because basically it's also a pastiche on Stephen King. So it kind <laughs> of doesn't really know. It's not really focused. It doesn't really know what it is. All the imagery is Lovecraft, but it's based on sort of like a Stephen King best-selling author. But I guess that's because they were trying to update it and be like, well, who's the modern equivalent of H.P. Lovecraft? Well, it would be someone like a Stephen King, I guess is what they were doing. Yeah, because, you know, Impact Madness is great. They play in that same ballpark, H.P. Lovecraft and uh, Stephen King, in the fact that they've created these areas, whether it's kind of um, Derry or something like that, towns that recur over and over again in their books and like the setting of Colour Out of Space is uh, a fictional place called Arkham. And this is like set on the outskirts of it. A town that we ne- like never never really see apart from the mayor's office where like all, like all I kept thinking like that made me laugh about this movie was obviously like you've got this, um, now I want to say toxologist, but that's what Nick Cage keeps He's calling a, him. What's he a waterologist? What was it? Ah. Uh, a waterologist, that sounds <laughs> stupid. <laughs> it wasn't a mixologist, it was a. <laughs> oh god, what was he? He is a. A meteorologist. He was a. Well, he's kind of. Can you ed- edit this? No, well, I, I can do. <laughs> if it gets Didn't too. Cut this down, do you think? Do you think you'll cut this bit down? As we... yeah. Yeah. Try to share a wall and see if we can remember <laughs> what the phrase was. Um, hang on, I'm going to write ologist uh, in colour of. Color, what's it called? Colour out of space. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> Leave this in. Go on. A day. Colour out of space. He is a. Oh no, it doesn't come up. Fucking. Yeah, fuck it. This. Google has politely removed the word ologist from all of my searches. <laughs> okay. I think he was sort of like a waterologist then, shall we say? Yeah, and like, he, well, <laughs> he's kind of got this whole like B plot of like, he's very much uh, coming in like Woody from Toy Story, just going like, somebody's poisoned the waterhole. Like, that's his whole <laughs> like, that's his whole arc. And he's kind of like, frantically running about trying to tell people like oh, there's something there's, there's something in the water and like well he's sort of frantically running about but he's but he's sort of um he's established a relationship with the daughter right so yeah. they're the first they're the first characters to meet on screen right um and then she sort of welcomes them in like a member of the family later on when they're looking at the meteorite and Nicholas Cage is what's going on with this? <laughs> and then at one point Jolie Richardson accuses her of kind of like um uh not dressing, not having enough clothes on because she's trying to impress the boy. And you go, Yeah, sure. And then there's the bit where he knocks on the door and she's been throwing up and she goes, Now's not a good time. And he's basically trying to warn everyone that the water is poisoned. Mm-hmm. And he just sort of like half-heartedly stands on the porch and says, oh, well, if you can, try and drink bottled water. Yeah. And then he will, and it's kind of like, I think they've established that you know her well enough that you could have gone into the house and helped her if she was ill. Yeah, yeah. Know? Well, that, 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 so, like, so it's kind of like, go back to the opening scene. It's very bizarre in that, like, 
when you see that shot of her, I was like, I thought this was set in like modern day because like the way it's like opened up is you see her in these kind of like Wiccan robes and she's dressed like this is like kind of 1800s almost and she's barefoot and there's this horse and like one of the things I noticed straight away was like, it took a good minute for the horse to move. I was like, wow, that's some fantastic horse acting. Uh, I was like, I was like, what, what is going on here in the fact that like, this horse is not moving like at all? Like, it's just dead still. And I don't know. I don't know if you picked up on that or whether it's my kind of like nerd brain I looking. Think you, might, you might be the only person that has picked up on that. Well, <laughs> I think, maybe. <laughs> but that just means, that just makes you. Uh, uh, that, that makes you unique, though, doesn't it? So that's a good thing. You can definitely, see that's definitely, a positive. Definitely. I've, I've, um, I liked the beginning. I thought it, it, it reminded me of that um, uh, of Legend, you know, that Ridley Scott film. Mm-hmm. Well, it's got this, like, it's, the atmosphere of this movie is great and the fact that it's kind of like, it's like a fog machine all the time, just everything and, the, like, the colour, the colours of everything and, like, the way it's lit Aerial. is, yeah, it's... And like you said, it is very much like a spiritual sequel to Mandy and like this kind of use of colour and just it creates this atmosphere. And on paper, the plot for this is kind of tried and tested and been done in so many movies. Like you can you can see parallels of this to almost like The Shining in a kind of like a family isolated like and the patriarch going mad. You kind of see a bit of like poltergeist in this kind of like strange things happening to this family you've got like and you've got like tropes that you see in horror all the time of like it's always the youngest kid who happens to like be the first one to kind of get the heebie-jeebies and like figure out what or like be affected first do you know what i mean like the the child actor as well who plays um the youngest son jack julian hillard has like I, i looked up his career which is like fascinating he's only like done like five different things but like it's this the haunting of hill house House. that's that's what i reminded him from Um, yeah yeah i remembered him from he's um he's gonna be in the conjuring three he's in like this weird art house film called greener grass and it's just like he is just like he's got a better career than like a lot of actors who have been working like years in just kind of these interesting choices especially like the fact he's i don't know the poor kids is just put in these horrific situations of just being in these like horror movies like straight out of the gate do you know what i mean like especially the haunting yeah. of hill house into this it's like that 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 perfor- the performance he gives i mean he was great in that as well hmm. um yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. When talking about the way it looks and the way, I mean, it, they filmed it in Portugal. Oh, wow. So, so and it's weird because um, you don't think it makes much of a difference, but one of the reasons they filmed in Los Angeles in the first place, you know, in, when the film industry first began, was because the light was really good and the quality of air was really good and you got a certain quality on film. Mm-hmm. And you can sort of tell the difference when... Um, there's a film that is uh, set in New York and a film that's set in LA and a film that is set in New York but is filmed in Toronto or somewhere. Mm -hmm. You can tell the difference, you know. Um, And 
and I think that there's this weird kind of like ethereal quality to the film in Colour of Colour Out of Space. And um and I think one of the things that probably definitely adds to that is the fact that they didn't film it in America, you know? <laughs> it's filmed in uh in in Port I don't know I don't know many films that have been filmed in Portugal, if any. Uh, I'm sure they've got a film industry, but I haven't seen those. But I just think that when you add stuff like that, you can tell like when stuff has been filmed in Australia or New Zealand, you know, not just because of, uh, you know, they've got like um, you know, Ayers Rock in the background or whatever, you know, <laughs> but you can tell, you can tell when stuff has been filmed in certain places because of sometimes the way that the quality um, of the of the footage comes across. But yeah, I just thought that it just had this really interesting uh, feel to it all. And the, yeah, and the color, I mean, the colors are so, sort of such an important part to the film. I don't know. I mean, the, I think we're both being very vague about it, but I think it's because, I think partly it's because we both saw it yesterday. Yeah, it's, it's a real... There's, there's a lot to unpack, you know? And I don't think, I don't like, it feels like with H.P. Lovecraft as well, everything's set in a world that is kind of like, this is just a slice of like the pie. And it's like, I, I feel like now I need to either do a lot of research onto like where this fits into the mythology. Because we get this scene at the end where like the last half hour, things just unravel and it is like an acid trip with a dose of magic mushrooms all at once, like with a, 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 a bit of like fucking DMT thrown in for good measure. Cause it just kind of like, it goes balls to the you wall. Are Tommy Chung. <laughs> I'm Tommy Chung. What are you? <laughs> um, yeah. It's fucking mental. That the last, I think it's like the last 20 minutes. Yeah. are just, Fucking crazy, and um, uh, I, I I don't know. I I I really like, but I think so. I think part of it is the fact that it's fresh, and like 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 you. One of the first things I had to do after I saw it was look up the original story, mm-hmm. uh, listen to that. I've done like uh, I did a load of research about like how they made the film, and because it's just kind of like if you want to talk to me about Con Air. I can just talk to you about Conair. <laughs> I can talk to you for three hours of Conair without looking <laughs> up a single thing, right? But this is kind of like I don't, I don't really know where to begin with it because it is such a weird film. I think the other reason why it's difficult to talk about is because there's basically no story. It's, it's, it's. They they managed to plot it out, you know, but you're constantly waiting for things to go off the hook, and then they do eventually in the last twenty minutes, but they. They drip feed you moments. Like when I keep saying like the pacing was really slow, not a lot happens. They drip feed you these moments and it's gradually sort of like evolving. You get the impression that you have that one flower by the well, don't you? Yeah. And then you have that insect that comes out the well. And then as the film continues, there's more and more flowers and there's more and more insects. And you get the impression that this is the beginning of a full-on invasion on Earth. And it's just going to happen. It's not going to happen like instantly, but it's going to happen flower by flower, one at a time until it eventually, and it will take like a million years, right? Or it'll take a hundred thousand years, but eventually those flowers are going to take over the planet. And that's how the invasion is going to happen. You know? yeah. So it's sort of like, there's that sort of concept, which I thought was really interesting. Um, 
but, and oddly, they, they kept talking about how like time um, is affected and how time slows down. Well, there's a really interesting all... mo- there's a really interesting moment with that when the daughter is doing the washing up, and they like there's a shot of the clock, and like it it speeds up, like the clock speeds up, and then just stops completely. And then when she opens her eyes again, and the sink's overflowing, there's another shot of the clock, and hours have passed. So she has been stood there for hours and it's like, oh, and, and you get it with the son as well. When he like go, like goes out to look for the dog and then he comes back and says like, all of a sudden it just got dark. And like, he's supposed to at one point put the alpacas back. He, you, we see him put them back. And then the sister says like, you were supposed to put the alpacas back. And it's like, time is just like, jumping all over the place and it's like are we seeing are that or are they seeing and yeah like the time before he put the alpacas back or has do you know what I mean has t- like time times yeah. walked around them i think you, i definitely need to give it another watch because <laughs> um because i didn't pick up on any of that i just felt like there was some sort of like there were references to time slowing down and speeding up i felt like something had been cut out of the film where i hadn't really picked up on it but but maybe I just need to watch it again because there's so much going on in it. But at the same time, there's not a lot going on. It's basically a family that uh, is sort of falling apart because of this meteorite that land. And you're sort of waiting for it to get to its very worst. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't give you any answers and it doesn't give you... Um, it's not, if you're looking for like a satisfying story, it's not really there other than the fact that it's just this family that, that implodes. And they start off like being one of the most likeable yeah. screen fans. Nicholas Cage, okay, we'll go on to Nicholas Cage, right? I, when it first started, I was like, yes, finally. <laughs> really, he's not like Mandy, where he's like batshit crazy. Um, he's playing like a regular guy, and he plays, you know, the first time you see him, he's wearing like... Uh, jeans and sort of like uh, in my memory it's a gilet yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and wellies and he's on a and he just looks like you know it's just like it, I doubt he would have even had to go to like the costume department do you know what I mean it's what, just kind he, of like, he looks like the type of guy you would see in the background of a Top Gear episode yeah he looks like any man in a garden centre yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and it, and I just and it, but because it's Nicolas Cage, it sort of like really stands out. That you're just mm-hmm. like, oh, he's wearing wellies, and then I started thinking they call them Wellington boots in America because that's based on the Duke of Wellington, right? <laughs> and so you know, I started going off on this little tangent, um, and he just plays this really down to earth guy. And what I thought was really funny was um, uh, Joey Richardson asks him to go into his wine cellar to get a special. Uh, and he goes, oh, I know just the one. His acting, I think, is excellent, right? Mm-hmm. And especially in the first half of the film where he's playing a really likeable, slightly uh, eccentric, but but I think that when you play likeable dads, you can do it like Jeff Daniels, maybe, where there's no bells and whistles. It's just mm-hmm. sort of like, I'm a likeable man and I'm playing a dad, you know? Whereas what Nicolas Cage is doing is he's adding a level of eccentricity to it. But it still feels like the sort of 
very naturalistic behavior that any human being would, would, would any dad would do, right? But the, the bit that made me laugh was when she goes, oh, can you go into the cellar and get us? And he goes, oh, I know, just the wine. And it sounds like he's this expert <laughs> wine hoarder. He goes, he goes into this beautiful wine cellar. He's got hundreds of bottles of wine. And it sounds like he's a real wine expert, you know, like a real aficionado. But when you actually look at the wine, it all looks like they've bought it in bulk from a supermarket. Yeah. And they've all got the, they've got like, there's a, like a row of reds that have all got the exact same label that looks like anything that you would buy for like five ninety nine <laughs> from any supermarket or from Threshers. It looks like he's just bulk buys off Threshers. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> None of it's got any dust on it. They all just look like brand new out of the shop. So I thought that was quite funny because that's either like a deliberate reference or it's the fact that that it was a low budget production and the art department just filled it up with as many bottles of wine as they could get. Well, they get. Um, you get this element as well, like you're saying about him being like a likable dad. Do you get like this 3D element as well that he's got this like past, not that he's done anything dark, but like he's got this fraught relationship with his like deceased father and like he kind of like doesn't want to be like him. And there's like that exchange, which is a beautiful exchange of him and Jolie Richardson on the like porch where they're kind of like being like really loving to each other and, um, He's talking yeah, about, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, you get like great, great moments of humor where like, what is it he says to her? He's like, she's like, would you love me if I had no legs? And he says, like, I would just, uh, I would carry you on uh, an airplane as hand luggage and I could, I could have my way with you whenever I wanted, which is like yeah. a, a, a frankly quite bizarre like image, but at the same time in this like Lovecraftian world, quite romantic. It's the sort of thing that people really do to say to Yeah, 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 exactly. Joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, if it's a public joke, uh, then you've got to be really careful about stuff like that. But it's a <laughs> private joke. It gives it this extra level of sort of intimacy, mm-hmm. which I just thought worked really well. I also thought the other thing that they did really well in this film was exposition. They would give you information with sort of like a line of dialogue here and there. And it never felt like you'd learn something about the characters, but it never felt heavy handed. And it never felt like, especially right near the beginning of the film, you find out bits of information about the characters. And um, yeah, I just thought that that, that was handled really well. I thought, it was, I thought the script was great. I thought the acting was great. I thought it looked beautiful. The, um, the visuals were amazing. I thought Nicolas Cage was, um, I thought he was brilliant in it. I, I, I always get, I don't think it's necessarily career best, but I think that it's in the, it's in the top, it's in the top end. Where, you know, I think I think every time he comes, he turns up for work. When he's actually invested in the in the film, I think it, it's possible for people to just say, "Oh, it's a career best." I think it's a joint best performance with maybe like a handful of others. He's really he's really good in it, and um, and I always feel like really weirdly proud when my favourite, you know, when sort of like. Adam Sandler turns up and he does a good thing and mm-hmm. you go, oh yeah, good. Because you can, if you're a fan of someone, I don't think, it's not, un, it's sort of unconditional love, but you can sort of, you can still differentiate between what's bad and what's good. Mm-hmm. You know? And with Nicolas Cage, it's sort of like, I, I feel like this weird sort of level of pride when not only is the film good, but he's realised it's good and he's made an effort. It would be sad if he'd have done an all-time best Nicolas Cage film 
uh, an all-time best Nicolas Cage performance in Left Behind. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's a terrible film and it would have been wasted on it. But he, he knows when he's onto something good. And that's what he illustrates in this film. He's really great in it. It's a good film. Well, and it looks like, like looking forward in his career, there's a movie I know that's supposed to be coming out this year. And I think it's like one of the last films that finished production before like the coronavirus is a film called Willy's Wonderland, which from kind of, um, I know you're a, you're a massive Evil Dead fan, especially Army of Darkness, right? Um, so he, yeah, he's in the film Willy's Wonderland where he plays a silent janitor who uh, is a janitor of an amusement park and the animatronics come to life because they're like possessed by demons in kind of a Five Nights at Freddy's like style um, horror comedy, very much leaning towards horror. And yeah, Nicolas Cage plays this silent guy who has to kind of come on in this almost like video game-esque battle against these animatronics, which I feel could be finishing off this kind of weird spiritual sequels of or like trilogy of man trilogy yeah matt germain kind of playing these art house hot like well especially especially now in this kind of like he's leaning very much into the horror genre and kind of found found his niche in the way that keanu reeves is just going to dine out on um john wick for as long as it's like viable for him to do like this could be nicholas cage's like kind of niche for the next 10 years or however long he really wants to kind well, what, of stay on this path. What, what Keanu Reeves really needs to do is he needs to get another trilogy mm-hmm. of like, so he's done the matrix and he's done John Wick. And so he sort of like needs a, another trilogy where he's got a trilogy of trilogies. <laughs> um, but like Nicholas Cage is, um, it depends what Willy's Wonder what's it called Willy's Wonderworld Willy's Wonderland yeah well, it should have been called World um, <laughs> <laughs> Willy's Wonderland um, it, it depends what the tone is and is it an art house film or is it um, I'm not sure because obviously it's not it's not out all I've seen is like visuals from it you can kind of see the poster, again, if I'm going just off the poster again, which you can see on IMDb, straight away, this is what like kind of gives me the idea that this very much fits into that wheelhouse is the colour scheme. So we kind of see this like scrawled writing that says, oh, it says Wally's Wonderland, which is like, it's... Wally's. Yeah, yeah, which is a, a weird thing. Like it's now been retitled to Willy's Wonderland. But... Oh yeah, well the poster looks incredible. Exactly. Do you right, know what I mean? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Like okay. because because I mean, being a Bruce Campbell fan, you are mm-hmm. set up for disappointment quite a lot. Where oh, they're going to make a film called My Name Is Bruce, where Bruce Campbell has to fight actual spirits, and, the, and then you watch it, and it's like, oh, oh no. Oh, I waited three years for this. You know, or you get like Man with the Screaming Brain. Bruce Campbell's going to be in a film called Man with the Screaming Brain where, he, where he put, his brain gets replaced by another brain and he's got to fight his brain. <laughs> oh, no. It's, oh, no. And then you get something like Bubba Hotep where you go, oh, well, Bubba Hotep is so good. If only it had a bit more budget to really sort of like achieve what it wanted to. 
you know, so Wally's Wonderland, that does look incredible, actually. It's his uh, Magenta trilogy, then. Yes, yes, the uh, the the Free Colours Magenta, I think, uh, will, be, <laughs> will, will, will be the box set you'll be able, you'll be able to buy. Uh, well, perfect. Yeah, we kind of... It's a, it's a weird one. Like, is there any moments else that really jumped out to you in Colour Out of Space before we wrap things up, Nick? Um, just that when I watched the documentary... Uh, when I watch sort of like behind the scenes stuff, I think that there's a there's a Blu-ray that's coming out which includes the short story as well. Oh, amazing! Uh, as like a booklet. Um, but they tried to do as much stuff practically as possible. I thought that the insects looked really good in a few shots and not so good in a couple of other shots. Um, I thought the bit when oh my gosh, she turns into that. You only see it for a shot, but I would say that that was just really, it fucked me up. I just thought it was absolutely fucking horrific. Um, and there are a couple of really nice moments in it. Most of the special effects were practical, which I really loved. Well, there's, um, that, there's that moment of like... Not, oh, you go. Go on. Uh, the, the moment with the alpacas, like we kind of get this like, yeah. I guess would have been animatronics when they're all fused together. Again, yeah. like... Well, that, that's the bit I was going to mention. Yeah. They're, they're, that's a miniature. That's a tiny little puppet. Oh, amazing. And and, uh, and 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 so so a lot of the stuff is kind of like full scale. Mm-hmm. And then stuff like the alpacas when they're all merged together was kind of like this sort of like table sized puppet that they had, and it was miniatures. But um, yeah, there's some really good there's some really good bits in it. Um, and as I say, I would say as a, I really enjoyed it as a film. I loved it. I felt a bit confused by it. Um, which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing. I like films where you have to go away and sort of like either watch them again or work them out. Mm-hmm. But don't I, I also like films that just give it you on a plate. But um, but I like sometimes watching films that you have to do a little bit of digging around and homework on. And this is sort of good for that. And I think it um, it probably lives up to multiple viewings. Um, it's a really great Nicolas Cage performance, but I think everyone is good in it. I think the kids are all really good in it. Um, and uh, I would just say that maybe the pacing was a bit off, but I just, yeah, I loved it. I really, I really enjoyed it. Or maybe I didn't love it, but I did really enjoy it. Well, it's quite refreshing uh, to, I don't know, the way horror's gone, obviously, this is in amongst the kind of like Ari Aster, Robert Eggers-like stuff. And it kind of like does something different to that because that, all that stuff's kind of like folk horror and stuff like that for me it's yeah. really nice to see just like a kind of sci-fi and very much like body horror is something that like just makes my skin crawl like there are moments in this like that finger like when she cuts off her fingers you can see something coming off like coming a mile off and you're like don't happen or like there's moments when they're walking in the barn and you can kind of hear these distant groans of the alpacas like when the two sons go in and it's it's fucking terrifying and i'm like I'm, I'm always dubious to drink tap water since watching this film which is like i don't for that for something to have an effect on me like that it's like well that, that's great like even if it's not the best film in the world it's nice to kind of be here a day later and go do you know what that's still living with me it's not like a lot of a lot of films you kind of watch them and within a half hour you're like what, what was that film i just watched like I don't, yeah so, but also with stuff like The Witch and The Lighthouse and this, I was talking to, uh, I do a radio show mm-hmm. and I was talking to my producer 
we were talking about, she was talking about John Travolta and she's like saying, well, what's really happened with John Travolta? And you know, the same thing that's happened with John Travolta has happened to a lot of stars. It's happened to, you know, Bruce Willis and Nicolas Cage and uh, Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And basically the, the thing that's happened is that there really aren't any movie stars anymore. What you've got is you've got franchises where you've got to attach yourself to a franchise. You know, someone like Chris Hemsworth, he's a huge star when he's Thor, but when he goes off to make something else, it's kind of more of a gamble, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's all about franchises now. Whereas when Nicolas Cage was huge in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, um, it was about not only star-led vehicles, but it was about mid-budget vehicles. So you would be able to make an $80 million film starring Nicolas Cage, and it would be a huge release, but then you could also release a Terminator movie that cost $200 million, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, but what, what you have now is you either have films that cost $10 million, or you have films that cost $200 million, $300 million, right? And you don't really have anywhere in between. You've either got a Star Wars film, or a Marvel film, or a DC film, you know, a franchise film, or you have these tiny little films like Colour Out of Space, Mandy, um, uh, you know, The Witch, uh, and The Lighthouse, and you have these, and those four films are really interesting kind of little psychological, uh, and I hadn't really lumped them together until you just mentioned it, but you have those like psychological sort of uh, low budget um, thrillers that really don't get made. So when you have someone like Nicolas Cage sh shining a light on it mm -hmm. or Willem Dafoe kind of uh, taking part in one of those films, it kind of like, um, it really gives them a chance to sort of uh, be seen. And I think, they, I think these films are really great. But what's really sad about it is that you don't, there are so many careers that, that they're not going to make films anymore, really, mm -hmm. uh, of maybe any real substance or that aren't deeply compromised because there are they just don't really make many if any mid-level budget movies so it's either incredibly low budget which this was or incredibly huge budget you know you even like Sylvester Stallone was in Guardians of the Galaxy 2 you know because everyone knows the future is franchising yeah yeah well there's that um, there's the thing that, like, with some of those actors, it would be nice to see them kind of take, put put ego, if it's that, to side, and take on some of the roles in these lower-budget films. I'm not sure if it's a thing of them not wanting to do it because they feel like they, they, they deserve more. Like, and you mentioned Willem Dafoe, which, like, I love Willem Dafoe, I, and I very much see him as, like, one of Nicolas Cage's contemporaries and the fact that they are both out there to just kind of roll the dice on any given project and like some like there's some Willem Dafoe movies that like do you know what I mean you gotta hold your nose and go into them but then like he pops up in stuff that is like great and that's like that kind of crossover when they're both in um Wild, Wild Heart. Heart. yeah yeah and like do you know what I mean like Willem Dafoe and that and then again in 2016 like they both did uh Dog Eat Dog the uh, Paul Schrader movie which like Nicolas Cage again just to get that film made, he gave up some of his pay so Willem Dafoe could get paid, which shows, again, that he has a true love for making films. And it's not just about, like, his, his like, icons, are your, your Bella Lugosi's and kind of your Karloff's and stuff like that. He loves, and, like, Vincent Price and, like, 
I think Nicolas Cage, if he carries on the way he's going, is going to become like a kind of... Hey! Let's <laughs> my pictures of yeah. Vincent Price, Chris Lee, Boris Karloff, and Peter Cushing. Nicolas Cage will go that kind of like Vincent Price route if he kind of like tiptoes down this avenue of like horror as well and like I don't know massively inspired by like German expressionism filmmaking and just like is again just wants to roll the dice on all these interesting projects that that a lot of these other actors you're like I don't know like I think from listening to Kevin Smith talk about the run-ins he had with Bruce Willis, like I, th- I think there is a case of he w- he won't take a punt on these lower budget movies or. But he, but he's doing he's doing DT he's do, he's doing direct to video, isn't he? Yes, yes. Um, and and his and and he he can barely be bothered to make a, yeah. a, a Die Hard movie, let alone do you know what I mean? The last the last Die Hard film was fucking atrocious, and it's kind of like your name is all over this. This is your franchise, and you've got no love for it, and it's it's sort of crazy. Whereas if you look at when Arnold Schwarzenegger came back, he he, he tried to make like a, a, the big budget stuff, and it's kind of like well, there's not really a market for it. So then he made that film Maggie, Maggie, yes, yeah, Maggie, the one about his daughter being a zombie, which was sort of like his low budget sort of Nicolas Cage movie in a way. I mean, he do, he's not, he doesn't have the same instincts to sort of elevate the material. So he was good in it, but he wasn't like, fucking hell, you've got to see this Schwarzenegger <laughs> performance. It wasn't sort of crazy. He was playing it so downbeat. But I mean, you know, I mean, he tried to make like uh, this interesting film. The thing is, right, when you, look at the, when you look at these films and you look at Bruce Willis and what he's doing, I think, and you look at something like um, Nicolas Cage in Knowing, right? Uh, that's the one that's the end of the world, right? Uh, no, uh, Knowing, yes, Knowing is the end of the world, yeah. I always get that and Next. And the other one is Next. Yeah, yes. yeah I get them confused. Yeah. Um, but Knowing is the, is the end of the world, right? And you can do that as a big budget movie, or you can kind of like, you can do National Treasure as this big budget movie. But you try and do a film like that on a tiny budget, right? You can't do it. You try and make a diehard film on a tiny budget, it, you know, they have done it, but it ends up being Skyscraper starring Anna Nicole Smith, right? <laughs> it's kind of like, you, 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 the, you, these films, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to downscale an action movie and give you the bang for your bucks that you expect from an action movie without it feeling deeply compromised. Whereas you can make a $10 million horror movie and stick Nicolas Cage in it, and you can still be inventive and you can still be creative and you can still put, I think, which is why, also when you have all the money in the world to do it, you start adding CGI where you don't need Mm -hmm. it and it and it all undoes. And I think horror is basically, it's a perfect genre for low budgets. Um, oh. But then they like franchise it all out and then you have The Conjuring 3 and, you know, uh, Annabelle and uh, what's the other one that they're doing? Um, the Nun. Do you yeah, know what yeah. I mean? It's yeah. kind of like, they're, they're sort of like, they're too big budget. They, they end up not really becoming that scary, I think. Whereas something like this, when you have to use your imagination and play with concepts and things are genuinely creepy and confusing and you have to use your brain to work it out. Um, and then it's like cobbled with the fact that the actors want to be there. 
because yeah. the script is good, they're going to turn in a good performance. So there are all these elements working in its favour by having like this low budget sort of Nicolas Cage science fiction horror movie, which isn't, I mean, it isn't as fun as you think it's going to be. It's kind of like bleak. Yeah, and like but, this, this could very much be uh, coupled with like a, a very weird double bill of this and hereditary. Not only are they kind of like about this family going mad, like, do you know what I mean? Like isolated within their house. They're like, they're brought together as well by both of them. Fantastic scores by Colin Stetson. Like the, the score to Colour Out of Space. I've been listening to it this morning uh, before recording. And it's just, I don't know, it's it's weird. It's kind of like, you, and it has these moments that swell. And there's like certain like, I think it's when like shit really hits the fan at the end. When you kind of get this glimpse of the like other world where this like these a- aliens come from. And like, it feels like someone's sitting on your fucking chest. Like, and that's kind of like the visuals coupled with like the music together and just kind of like the foreboding tenseness that the movie up until that point has created. And you kind of get this release and it's like, well, this isn't a pleasant release where I'm like, do you know what I mean? Like a lot, like, like a laugh, like after a punchline and a joke, this is like, no, no, th- this is getting tighter on my chest. And I feel like, and then you're kind of, the film ends and you're like, I, I just, I don't know. I want to sigh. I want to kind of exhale of breath, but I'm like, I don't know what the fuck I've just watched. And like, it's, this is going to stay with me. But it is an entertaining film. I mean, oh, there, yeah, yeah, there yeah. are definitely, laughs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, absolutely. All of that goes out the window about half an hour before the end. Um, but <laughs> what was that? What's the Marlon Brando movie they're watching? I'm not sure because that's an interesting one because the last movie that Richard Stanley was like directed for years was Marlon Brando. Yeah, in the island of Doctor Moreau, which like again yeah. has a fascinating like that could be a whole podcast series on on that's that that be, movie. That's got to, that is one of the best documentaries, Lost Souls, the making of uh, Richard Stanley's Island of Doctor Moreau. It's got to be one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. It's got everything that you would want <laughs> out of a piece of fiction. It's got like good guys and bad guys and twists and suspense, and it's got it's got everything in that film. It's such an incredible film, um, and. Uh, yeah, so Richard Stanley was making The Island of Dr. Moreau and then it got overtaken. Uh, I was just such as this... Watch, watch, watch Lost Souls, basically. The only film that I'd seen of his apart from that, I think I saw Dust Devil. I don't think I've even seen Hardware. I think I saw Dust Devil a while ago. Um, but, um, yeah, that's got to be an in-joke, right? When they put on her favourite film and it's a Marlon Brando film. Yeah, that Marlon Brando film is... I don't know. It just says a Marlon Brando. I'm I'm on IMDb trivia now. It just says a, a, a Marlon Brando film is is playing on the TV. So, but yeah, it must be. And there's there's a reference to um, hardware on the wall of the son Benny's room. There's like a quote from hardware, which is uh, saw it a moment ago. No flesh will be spared which is like a quote from that movie is on the stoner kids wall. So like, it's nice that like, I don't know, Richard Stanley from listening to in interviews has this like weird sense of humor. And there's a story about a short that he made 
before Color Out of Space, which uh, he used a Ouija board to come up with the idea, and the Ouija board has writing credits for this for this uh, short film that he made, which is called. It's called Mother of Toads, which is this short film which, yeah, him and a friend bought a Ouija board from Toys R Us while he's living in the Pyrenees and used the Ouija board to write an outline of this of this short film. And then within like 24 hours, it was getting funded and being made. And I'm not sure if that story is just Richard Stanley having fun with interviewers and going, this is what I came up with. But at the same time, the area he lives in, like people would come to visit him. And he said in interviews, like, oh, this feels very like loved crafty and like where you're living. And it's like, he has taken this kind of obsession with Lovecraft that he's had like since a child. He said his mum used to read him Lovecraft yeah, as yeah. a child, like, which yeah. is like, And this wow. was his favourite story. And this was his favourite one. Yeah. So like, and like, and it's about the end of the fuck. <laughs> it's about a family getting destroyed by a fucking out of space fucking alien that lands on a fucking meteorite. It's just fucking. Oh my god! And it's your favourite fucking story growing up. It's so bleak. It's fucking. Oh, this is my favourite childhood bedtime story. It's so bleak. But um, yeah, and also, but having that quote. What's the quote from Hardware? No flesh will be spared. Because that fits right in with this film, and it's almost like him saying his career. It's almost him saying, "I've always been about Lovecraft." Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's like he's saying that this quote I can put up it as a set decoration on an HP Lovecraft film, and it comes from one of my first films, Hardware, um, and it's his career like coming full circle. You know, it's worth pointing out that H.P. Lovecraft was a massive racist and horrific human being. Oh, 100%. Yeah, this is the... Uh, some, sometimes look at, looking back on a lot of the uh, a lot of these films, there's like... There's, there's directors that like na- now and uh, producers that have produced a lot of Nick Cage's films that like with a, with a modern perspective. Well, I think even at the time, H.P. Lovecraft was a piece of shit. He seemed like a very difficult man as well in regards to um, yeah. a lot of things. But yeah, massively racist and a massive... But we're not here to applaud H.P. Lovecraft. We are here yeah. to applaud Nicolas Cage for, fingers crossed, because that will be my podcast down the pan, is a decent human being. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so before I let you go, Nick, uh, there's three questions I always ask at the end. Uh, and they are as follows. In this movie, does Nick Cage have bad hair? It's it's not good. It's odd. For, I think for Nicolas Cage, it's quite good. He's sort of got it shaved around the sides and it's long up top. But I, again, it's, again it's, it's talked about in the film. So even when it's moments of bad hair, it's, it's like you said about Season of the Witch, it's a character choice. There, are, there is a choice made, and like when he looks like kind of dishevelled when he's doing that like rate, uh, TV interview, his hair looks yeah. like absolute shit, doesn't he? Look, he looks. They, do, they do mention his hair. Yeah, they do mention his hair in the film, but also it is sort of like uh, I think I think that the, I think the film is next. Yeah, where he plays the magician. He has a similar <laughs> sort of hairdo in that. 
So it's that sort of haircut. Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's all right, but they do mention it, so I haven't got a problem with it. Perfect. Uh, does he have a crazy voice? Obviously, he's known for kind of going to these yeah. places and <laughs> pulling out these yeah, voices. It gets, crazy. it gets really crazy. Like, like he starts dipping into this sort of um, Californian dude uh, pastiche thing later on in the film, which sort of comes out of nowhere. It feels like an early Nicolas Cage decision, you know, um, but... Like, like really early. Well, we get this um, kind of weird duality at times in this film where, like, when he does that voice, he's kind of quite angry, but then, like, in the next scene, he'll be kind of, like, back to his normal voice, kind of being very attentive to his family. And, like, I think he does that voice where he's like, go feed your mother. Like, he kind of shoves her into the attic. And, like, he's got some amazing, like, quotes in this film. Like, uh... Yes, one-liners. Yeah, one-liners. I think they're like one I picked up on really early is uh, uh, time for you to do the dishes. He kind of like does it in this kind of like Mister Rogers real happy dad voice, and then yeah, but that's the thing. That's like um, that's like a, that's a that's a character choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Know? That's that's like, and I think that what that does those are one of the standout moments where you kind of like, he also says that there's, a, there's another bit where he goes, he comes in and he's trying to get the car working. And he comes in and he goes, the car is not happening. <laughs> you know? And then, and then the daughter goes, what do you mean the car is not happening? And that feels like, um, a Nicolas Cage improvisation. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know who would write that as a bit of dialogue. You know, I don't, especially because it wasn't written with Nicolas Cage in mind. I think that that's the sort of thing that would come where he would go, the car's not working or the car's not starting. And then Nicolas Cage just comes in and he finds like an, a, an interesting spin on how to give that like mundane bit of information. Well, yeah. And, I... then, and then the daughter is kind of like going, well, what do I say now? And then you go, well, what do you mean? And I, th I think that's the sort of thing that was probably worked out on set. Um, and just like the bit when he tells him to do the dishes, he finds a really upbeat, fun, but believable dad way of doing yeah. it. And you go, I love this film. He makes the character... Like, that's an example of sometimes Nicolas Cage can absolutely drag you out of a film. And you go, well, he's in a different film to everyone else. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then this is an example of him using his eccentric twit, uh, his eccentric tics to... Um, to sort of like just create a really believable three-dimensional character. Exactly, yeah. Um, yeah. It's really interesting you're saying about that, something that would come up on set. Uh, I've, I've spoken to a couple of like uh, writers and directors who have worked with uh, Nicolas Cage, and they, they have said like he always asks for, his only stipulation is, can I just have one take for me? Like, And, and, and that nine times out of ten is what ends up on screen. He, they they go with that because he's like kind of, and he'll know he'll he'll come to table reads. I spoke to the director of uh, Mum and Dad, Brian Taylor, um, and he said like he came to the table reads for that, and he knew everything. He knew his monologue. He like delivers. I'm not sure if you remember that like scene where he's like he destroys the pool table and has this kind of like breakdown monologue, kind of like talking about how his life is like not what he envisioned when he was younger and it's all gone to shit and just kind of like this thing of despair of, I guess, I don't know, a people feel when they kind of get into a, 
a loveless marriage and you had this all these ideas to be evil can evil and now you're a, you know i mean a soccer dad like with two kids in this kind of suburban life and he said he came to the table read before anyone like like it kind of was just going and he knew it all off by heart and he was like he knew other people's lines and it's like he will do that for a small budget movie like like do you know what I mean like mum and dad's not the biggest budget in the world it's like he does he, he fucking cares and that's what's great about it who was the mum in that that was Selma Blair Selma Blair that's a weird team up right yeah well there's like um he's not nearly old enough well that 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 I think that's a Hollywood like foible isn't it that there's a lot of a lot of old men with very young wives in movies, sure, but like, even but like Famke Janssen would have been perfect for something like that, right? Or or even Nicole Kid. Well, I don't know. <laughs> that is that is absolutely mind-boggling to me that Nicole Kidman and him were in a Joel. Sh- was that the Joel Schumacher film? Yeah, that's mind-boggling because she's she's been consistently near the top of her game. Why would she need to make that film? Well, I guess when you look at, like, if Joel Schumacher, you kind of go, oh, all right. Like, well, no. I, no, I no, no, no. No, I'm saying. Would have. I, yeah, maybe. Uh, I think, you know, you got like, he, he has made, he has made like a stretch of good films. Yeah, he made eight, eight Millimeter was interesting. Like, maybe not the so, best. Oh, yeah, of course. He's already worked with him on Eight Millimeter. So yeah. it's kind of like getting the old team back together again. Right. Yeah, sure. That makes sense. But yeah, uh, if, if you look at Nicole Kidman's career around that time, it's not like she was kind of like, I don't know, out on the skids or anything like that. She was kind of doing like consistent, interesting work, whether it was like The Paperboy or um, I get low budget, but still very interesting. Uh, maybe this was like a real paycheck then. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I could kind of see something in that like... There is interesting players in it, as I mentioned earlier. Like you got Ben Mendelsohn, who was kind of like on the rise at the time, who's like a fantastic, like a great, great actor, and a lot of stuff he turns up in. But like yeah, the sure, but the shit, script, right? the script is f- terrible. Like if that's all you're going on, if that's all you're going on is the script from this film, what's it called again? Trespass. Yeah, there's already been like three other films called Trespass as well. <laughs> They're all better than this film. But it's like, if, you, if you're basing it on the script alone, you go, who else is doing it? And then you go, well, it's got an amazing cast. And it's got, yeah, a sort of office game, but previously great director. Mm-hmm. Then I guess you, you might do it, but this, you've still got to base it on the script, which is <laughs> fucking awful. <laughs> oh, it's, oh, what a terrible film. <laughs> Am I on, Nicole Kidd? Yeah, I am. So where's where was Trespass? Uh, Trespass, right? 2011. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So she done. Oh, she followed up the Adam Sandler movie. Just go with it with Trespass. Oh wow. And then she did the Paperboy, which no one saw. Stoker was great. And she came off the Golden. Oh right. Yeah. Right. Oh my god. Yeah. Right. Okay. So she did the Interpreter. Oh my god! Oh my god! So Cold Mountain was a hit. You got to go back quite a while. Yeah. Cold Mountain was a hit. Stepford Wives was not a hit. Birth was not a hit. The Interpreter was not a hit. Bewitched was a flop. Uh, the Invasion was a disaster. 
Margot at the Wedding, indie film. Golden Compass, flop. Australia, flop. Nine. I can't remember how that was. I don't think people like that. Rabbit Hole, depressing, indie. Just go with it, Adam Sandler. Then she does Trespass. I mean, she hasn't made like a bona fide banger. I, yeah. this. I think Stoker is absolutely incredible. I, I love Nicole Kidman, but I'm surprised by seeing that stretch of films, really. So I guess that kind of makes sense of why she maybe did Trespass in that it was, I don't know, kind of fail after fail. And I think Golden Compass is a really interesting one because like you were mentioning earlier, like this whole franchise culture that I guess around 2007 would have, I don't, yeah, they would have very much been hoping for it after like the the hits of the Harry Potter franchise and uh, Lord of the Rings. And obviously like based on the uh, Philip Pullman books, were hoping it was going to be gold and turned out to be like a steaming pile of shit. Like, it was the best of both worlds, wasn't it? It was, it was Lord of the Rings epic stuff, made mm-hmm. sort of magical fantasy of Harry Potter. Well, and it's based on a kid's book. Let's put them together and, you know. <laughs> but um, I, I, don't, I don't think I saw it, but um, I, didn't know the, I didn't really know the source material. But I don't know. That's what so, an interesting career, though. <laughs> That's Nicole Kidman. Anyway, Nicolas Cage. Perfect. So, but yeah, um, one last question before we do the... the regular wrap-up of, of what you're up to is as somebody who I, I don't think I think it's fair to say has used anger very much in his career like very similar to Nicolas Cage do you ever feel that like that is I don't know has that ever like have you ever felt pigeonholed by that in in that thing of like obviously you're like like a lot of people I spoke to my brother and I said oh, I'm speaking to Nick Helm in a few days and he was like oh is he is he the, is he the angry guy I think I've he's <laughs> I think he's going off solely uh, your appearance on <laughs> 8 Out of 10 Cats Does Countdown. Uh, but, yeah, um, I don't know how, like, and, yeah, it brings me on to the, the final question of, like, do we get a cage freak out as a man, a man who's de- delved and, I think, personally, uses anger in a, in a great way, like yourself. But, yeah, do we, get, do we get a classic Nick Cage freak out in this? Uh, what, in this movie? Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say the second half of the film is like him constantly veering from one thing to the other. Basically, it's um, they set up they set up his dad quite early on in the film. He has like like, like what you said earlier is that throwaway line about his dad about how his dad was horrible, and he's basically spent the entire first half of the film making you fall in love with him as like the dad. You just go, this guy's great, he's mm-hmm. likeable, funny, he loves cooking for his family, even though he's not very good. We don't <laughs> tell dad he's out the room. Um, I think you can, I think everyone watching this film, I mean, he reminded me of my dad, and I'm not a dad, but he, he's sort of like the sort of dad that you'd like to be. And he even makes the fact that no one likes doing the washing up, but you're doing the washing up, and he makes that into sort of like something fun. And then the second half of the film is basically him turning into his dad. And him sort of like flipping between the two. And yeah, it's a classic, uh, classic freak out. I wouldn't say I get pigeonholed as an angry man, 
but almost every part I've ever played has had some sort of level of substance substance abuse. And there you go. All right. Oh, yeah. So you can be the, you can be the alcoholic, Nick, or you can be the ex drug addict, or you can be. And I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, okay, cool. I can do other things. <laughs> but there, uh, that in terms of pigeonhole, that's what I get. But um, yeah, Nicholas Cage does do a proper yeah. Well, yeah, I, but it's not like Manti level. It's like grounded in. Uh, Mandy is sort of like a surreal performance, whereas this is sort of a quite a grounded performance. Well, yeah, we get that moment in the car, which like he just like loses his mind, but like is justified because like that's the thing. I think a lot of the time from speaking earlier about these kind of sizzle reels of him like losing his shit, as like they say, in this it's justified in that like it is fucking like what he and he kind of comes back in and he's like i don't know what is going on like i don't understand what is going on anymore so you can see that frustration when all they want to do is leave and the car is like and he kind of has this freak out where he's just starts screaming in the car and it's quite similar to that one in mandy where he's like in his pants necking vodka in the bathroom yeah i i just remembered the bit you mean i thought you meant the bit when he's driving her back from the hospital but you mean that when he's like smashing yeah but then that's kind of like you're sort of like watching it going oh here he is and in actual fact it's probably it's definitely it's come from a place that he has found emotionally honest Mm -hmm. yeah but i think that if you're if you're sort of an ironic fan then those are the moments that you'll really love but the moment i really loved was when um he's just this really loving husband and then he flips around and he says the thing about uh cancer and he says well you'd know all about that Mm. and she's like immediately hurt and you go that's so cruel and it's completely out of character for what you know about that character up to that point that um that i just thought moments like that were really and he and he performs the fuck out of it because it's so callous and cruel and mean and you can see that it hurts her um and he's kind of like oblivious to it, and you, and you just know at that point that he's basically possessed by another character. You know? Yeah. And I think that that's a real subtle thing. You, you know, you don't, you feel sort of hurt at the same time that he said it, but you're also aware that there are two different performances that he's that he's pulling off there. He's pulling off the fact that he's this nice guy dad yeah. that that we all love at the beginning of the film. And then you're pulling off the fact that his character completely changes. He does it really well. It's really, it's really um, subtle. And, and it's basically, it's two performances in one. It's, I think, I think it was really good. But then also when you talk about the sizzle reels, you look at something like um, the Wicker Man, which isn't a great film, but the most famous bit about that is the bees. Yeah. But they were CGI bees, right? So he was performing the fuck out of yeah, that yeah, scene. Yeah. And they were CGI bees. Right? So he's not responsible for the quality of the CGI not really selling that, right? Um, I don't know. I just think... And we, when you look at one of his most uh, exaggerated performances in Bad Lieutenant, that's also one of his best. Yeah. And contextually with the film, it works perfectly. Well, as, as... I think sometimes... Sometimes there's maybe a there's maybe a, a the, his performance in the film don't quite line up, but his performance is huge and Bad Lieutenant is huge and and you've also got Werner Herzog who's basically yeah. encouraging him off camera to just go as mental as he possibly can, and so you've got like this perfect storm of a film which is Bad Lieutenant, which I think is great. 
Well, I like to think that, like, Nicolas Cage to Werner Herzog, he sees, like, an element of Klaus Kinski in him. In, like, he will go to these, like, crazy places in, in his performances and will go there. And, yeah, Bad Lieutenant is very much up there. And I think, like, adds to the point that it's when Nicolas Cage works with interesting directors is when we kind of and know how to, like, harness that kind of energy, he that nouveau shamanic like style of acting that Nicolas Cage has that can ramp up to 11, but in a film like Color Out of Space or Mandy or or Bad Lieutenant, they are justified and they are within the realms of the film instead of just being cheap and like throwaway for that for that kind of sizzle reel culture of just like, ha ha, let's all laugh at Nicolas Cage. Yeah, I think it's ironic. But just to, just to make one yeah. one final point, <laughs> is that when you look at Con Air, which I would say is one of my favourite films, mm-hmm. um, uh, when you look at his performance in Con Air, he is surrounded by people losing their shit in that film. Yeah. You know, Cole Meany is losing his shit, John Malkovich, Fing Rames, Steve Buscemi, even John Cusack, you know, everyone is going big for that and he except for his massive accent that he's putting on he's the calm one in that film yeah you know and um i think it's an incredible performance i th- i think one of the things that people don't understand about con air is that it's a mega budget violent comedy right yeah people th- people just take it at face value but it's basically it's um it's this huge piece of economic storytelling where I always say that Suicide Squad was such a mess. You know, they introduced Will Smith three times at the beginning of Suicide (laughs) Squad and uh, they spend 45 minutes introducing all of the characters and then they don't introduce one character and then he comes on and he gets killed instantly and it's just an absolute, it's a shit show, right? And you look at Con Air, they introduce all of those guys through narration as they yeah. get off a bus and onto a plane. And he's literally just telling, John Cusack is just telling the audience who that bad guy is, why he's bad, why he's dangerous, <laughs> and now he's on the plane. And they do that for like five minutes at the beginning of the film. You don't need any more setup, And then you just enjoy watching these performances for the rest of the film. That's what Suicide Squad should have done. Yeah, and yeah. they just fucked it. You know? Um, I just think that it's, I think it's a really deliberately funny film. And I think people are really snarky when they look at Con Air and they're just like, oh my God, you know, oh, the, the, uh, the bit when he jumps through the door and then there's the explosion behind him, you know, oh my God. And he's just like, that's deliberate. It's, it's hilarious. They know exactly what they're doing. It's really funny. Come on, fucking Dave Chappelle's in it. You know, they know yeah. what they're doing. What? You know, um, the hero of the film, is um, uh, fucking Steve Buscemi who gets away with it at the end, and he's uh, he's basically Hannibal. Le- he's like a he's like a child murdering Hannibal Lecter, right? The whole there's a whole sequence in the middle of Con Air where you think that Steve Buscemi is going to kill a kid, right? In the middle of this fun action movie, there's, there's this really tense scene where you think he's going to kill a kid, and then you find out he doesn't kill a kid, and then you find out that he's the only one that's got away with everything. He's free, uh, and uh, and he's basically your favourite character in the whole film. And they've it's a, it's an action movie where they've made your favourite character in the whole film a child-murdering uh, Hannibal Lecter-type psychopath. 
and you're happy he gets away at the end. <laughs> and it's just kind of like, and, and you're, it's a comedy. It's, just, it's a really fun, entertaining movie. And it's a really unusual Nicolas Cage performance because he's completely reined in in that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, the, it's one of those things that kind of, it's the perfect synergy of a perfect elevator pitch of an idea. Do you know what I mean? Have all these convicts on a plane and it's just a roller coaster ride of a movie. It just kind of like, as you said, it sets it up, it gets going and doesn't fucking stop to the end. And to your point of it being a comedy, like one of the biggest quotable lines from that movie is put that bunny back in the box. How is that not a comedy line? Do you know what I mean? Like how- they, have, they have a life and death, they have a life and death fight <laughs> over a toy rabbit yeah. and people are watching it at face value. And like, they, like at the end of the fight, he goes, why couldn't you put the bunny back in the box? <laughs> And you go, um, and he's basically doing a Forrest Gump impression, right? <laughs> and it's just kind of like you're going, huh. like, and people are taking that at face value, going, oh my God, it's so stupid. They had a fight over a rabbit. And you go, yeah, you've got the joke. Why can't you see the joke? Why can't you, why, do you know what I mean? Why can't yeah. you just allow the film to own its own jokes? It's, it's brilliant. It's funny. Well, it's great. Well, there's a lovely reference to Con Air in Stolen, the f- uh, film that's directed by the same director, of uh, of of Conair, where Nicolas Cage's character comes straight out of prison and he's going to his uh, young daughter, and the first thing he gets from like a uh, news agent is a stuffed toy of a bunny. And like for me, as somebody who's like immersed myself in this world, I was like, yes, that is for that is for the nerds like me who are at home going like, oh no, it's the same director. Nobody else is going to pick up on this. But that is like that is something for for us. So yeah, I think I've seen, I think I've seen stolen. I'm not you, sure if you haven't. I would I would wholeheartedly recommend it. It is a film, and like um, I, I I've said it on the podcast, gave me the like thing of you should never judge like a film by its cover because the cover for stolen is fucking shit. But like it's. Yes. It's a great movie and like another one where Cage plays a very restrained role and like his co-star in it gets like the his nemesis in it gets this cage like performance of just like wildness. It it very much remind it's got like a kind of um die hard with a vengeance like feel to it. It's kind of got that fun Ocean's Eleven like aspects to it because Nicolas Cage plays this con man who like is kind of a few steps ahead of everyone and it's it's in that kind of like sea of shit that you can get lost in in the early 2010s that is one that i i, I personally will hold up and i don't that's that that's the hill i will die on i mean that's the, that's, that's the cool. so um yeah my um my second my second cousin is simon west oh the, the, but I, I've, I've never met him. <laughs> uh, his, his side of the family doesn't talk to our side of the family or something weird. But it's this thing. I was at a family reunion about 20 years ago and they said, oh, well, Simon West is uh, your second cousin. I was, I was doing a film. I wasn't doing a film degree, but I was studying film at university. And, uh, and I was just like, my second cousin directed Con Air. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, yeah. And I go, and... And we're not talking to them. <laughs> <laughs> I was so gutted. I was so gutted. He did Expendables. Did he do Expendables 2? He did Expendables 2 as well. 
Yeah, which again, yeah. A, that's like going back to like you, you said it throughout this, and so have I that that Cage is a man who makes like choices on what he does. He turned down a role in Expendables Three to do the movie Joe, like which right. just shows that like it's not about the big bucks for him because. What part was he up for? In Expendables 3, I guess, I, 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 I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether it would have been a villainous character or just a kind of throwaway kind of cameo like a lot of those guys have, or he would have been a new member of the team. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really sure. He was offered a role anyway. I think that it's either the sort of thing they would have written for him mm-hmm. or... Or it would have been the bad guy, and then they rewrote. Because I think that it's a bit ballsy to to go with um, Mel Gibson. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. To go, we want Mel Gibson to be the main bad guy in our film, and we're going to make him like into a proper bad guy. And it's like Mel Gibson going, "Yeah, I guess so. I guess, <laughs> I guess, I guess I'm going to get killed by." Sylvester Stallone and Dolph Lundgren and Wesley Snipes on camera now because because everyone hates me. I guess that's what I'm going to do. Whereas I think it's a weird I think it's a weird move, but I think Nicolas Cage would have either been a really good bad guy, or um, or yeah, he would have he, they would have written a part for him. Expendables Three is the best Expendables film, by the way. All right, thank you very much. Good night. <laughs> perfect well i'll yeah i've taken up way too much of your time already nick uh where can people keep up to date with your what you're doing obviously at the moment very much the the live comedy scene is on like taken taken taking a break like which yeah. yeah well if people like talking about films um or listening to people talk about films i do um a radio show on food bar radio every friday 12 till 2 which turns to a podcast so if you follow me on Twitter, which is at the Nick Helm, then um, I always like post a link to that every like Monday when it comes out as a podcast. So that's good. That's me and my mate talking about my mate Nathaniel Metcalf talking about films every week and other stuff. <laughs> Basically, we they already had two film podcasts on that on that radio station, and um, so we we lied and said, "Oh, we'll just talk about stuff that we like." But the only things that we like are film. <laughs> we, we got, we got, we got to there. And then, um, yeah, what else? Oh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm writing a new album at the moment, so that will come out at some point soon. Oh, and my um, live show, All Killer Some Filler, is available from yes. um, GoFasterStrike.com. Which, uh, as somebody watched it that just this morning, I would recommend it wholeheartedly. Uh, I guess it's good, cool. isn't it? Yeah, it's really it's 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 really fun, and it's really like like I it's it's hard to explain, especially obviously with you right here. Without like, uh, I, I will say in the intro, like how good it is, kind of uh, and stuff like but, um, that. But like, it's I, just it's it's fun. Like, I, it's just real, real, real entertainment. Like, which is like what I love. What I've always loved about like what you've always done is just this kind of thing. That, like, it's. I don't know. It's you can see you can see your influences. You can see what you what you love, like through music and stuff like that. And it's yeah, it's it's a great yeah. it's a, a great show, and it looks fucking great as well. Like yeah, it looks amazing. I mean, so we recorded it. Uh, we recorded it four years ago, and basically, I was so disappointed with how it went on the night 
and it took me four years to even watch it. <laughs> because of lockdown, the guy that recorded it all, he's been literally pestering me for like uh, four years saying, just watch it, Nick, because it's not as bad as you think <laughs> it is. And then I watched it, and I was just like, it's not only is it, it's like one of the best things, because, you, you know, I think one of the things that makes it good is that there are loads of things that go wrong on the night, mm-hmm. and there's mistakes. And I like fluff my lines in places, and there are um, there's some arseholes in the audience, and uh, there's a power cut on stage. There's all of these really like things that go wrong on the night. So it's not like it's a really slick show, but because we've left all of that stuff in, it feels like an actual night out. Do you know yes. what I mean? Yes. Which I think so it doesn't feel like a sh- it doesn't feel like a show that we refined and we performed it seventy times and then we recorded it. It feels like you've gone out for a night out, and this is what it was. That's yeah, that, that, and that, that is very much what people at, at the moment of recording this desperately need is that feeling of like community and being out and just having a fun time, which is exactly how I would describe all killer some filler. Um, amazing, Nick. Well, thank you so much for your time, and thank you for being on the podcast. Uh, yeah, it's been an absolute, absolute treat absolute ride yeah i could have talked about nicholas cage for another two hours thank (laughs) you very much once again a massive thank you to nick helm for coming and raging and with cage with me and a very much thank you to you guys for listening If you feel differently to myself and Nick about this film, don't hesitate to get in touch, which you can do via email, which is cagedinpod at gmail.com. Or you can find me on all the socials, which is cagedin at cagedinpod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. As a recommendation for this episode, you can always go back and listen to my conversation with effects artist Dan Martin, which will be a part of the Caged In Conversation series. And I spoke to Dan about his work on the film Possessor, Human Centipede, and this very film. Uh, I will drop that in the show notes, and if you follow on socials, I'm sure I'll put it in a thread with all of uh, the, the links to this episode as well. Because, yeah, it's really fascinating. Dan kind of talks about how they created the creatures and the stuff that's digital and the stuff that's practical effects in this film such a fun fun conversation and such such a lovely guy uh dan martin Uh, if you don't listen to the arrow video podcast he's one of the hosts and that's a fantastic podcast as for next week i will be joined by ben davies of the film floggers podcast to talk about the 2020 Dimitri Logafetis action drama sci-fi jujitsu. Do be sure to come back and listen to that one because we have a lot to say. If you want to support the podcast, please do so by heading over to Apple Podcasts, giving us a five-star rating and review, or any podcast platform for that matter, if it has a rating or review system, or tell a friend. Tell people, like, uh, if, if they enjoy Nicolas Cage film, if they enjoy a specific film, go, hey, check out this podcast. You might like it. Or you can always support this podcast financially over on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash caged in pod. And you can also find me, I always forget to plug this, you can find me on Letterboxd, 
where you can find kind of first reactions to films and kind of get a glimpse of what the episode might be like whether i'm going to be like oh bloody love that one or if i'm going to be slagging it right off so as always guys i've been petros i've been caged in you've been amazing planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Droop Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.